Hello, I'm Adam Pons Melby and you're listening to QUB Voices. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons license and we are on Twitter, Spotify and iTunes. There is now overwhelming agreement in the scientific community that climate change is caused by humans and that we, if we don't do more about lowering fossil fuel emissions, are facing a bleak future with increasingly erratic and destructive weather phenomena, wildfires, droughts, mass extinction of species and the displacement of large parts of the human population. Thankfully, in recent years, Movements have emerged all over the world that demand action from leaders, corporations and individuals. These voices make it clear that climate change disproportionately affects minorities and that sustainable change must challenge privilege, racism, sexism and power in general. Today I am talking to master student Maggie Murphy and PhD student Callum McGeown. We will be talking about ecofeminism, post-carbon and post-growth futures, and the challenges facing us as societies as well as individuals. And Callum, before we jump into the discussion, I'd just um, like you to briefly introduce yourself and what your research is about. So do you want to start, Maggie? Sure. Um, I'm Maggie Murphy, and I'm an LLM human rights law student. Um, My pronouns are she, her, and I am currently, um, my research interests are around forcibly displaced people due to climate change and natural disasters. And I'm specifically interested in looking at this with a feminist lens. Um, And I'm also interested in resource scarcity and water rights and the impacts this has on marginalized populations. And I'm also a member of the Gender Network here at Queens. And Callum, tell us about yourself. Sure. Uh, My name is Callum McGoon. I'm a second year PhD student here at Queen's uh, in the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics. Uh, I'm engaged in a, a project of political theory, that's normative inquiry, which is um, looking at the, the, the conditions um, necessary for a, a, a just transition to a, a post-growth and post-carbon society. Um, and that begins with a full understanding of the systemic barriers um, that we need to confront and, and the power that we need to confront to get there. Uh, I'm also a member of the, the fairly newly um, founded Centre for Sustainability, Equality and Climate Action here at Queen's. Great, thank you. So hearing you talking about your research, both of you, and, 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 and reading about it as well, with, with Callum, where, where your research concerns like 
post-growth and post-carbon societies and systemic issues in, in dealing with um, climate change and where, Maggie, is you're interested in resource scarcity and, and, and water rights, I, I wonder if there's a connection or overlaps in your research in, ter in terms of how um, the, like for example, the continuous growth on a planet with finite resources may uh, pose a challenge to making sure that everyone have access, equal access to basic necessities. Yes, um, absolutely. I would say that there's a lot of overlap there. Um, there's definitely issues of justice um, and equality and equity that are at play in, um, especially when you look at the environmental justice field uh, and just looking at um, resource scarcity and who gets what and how the wealthy get to keep their power and access to resources while the most marginalized suffer. And I think Callum's uh, research really um, intersects there in terms of looking at what the future is going to look like in terms of and how do we create a just future and how do we make sure that everyone has access to essential resources like water. I think water is a really essential resource that um, everyone deserves access to. And we see it even in um, developed countries. Like you look at the United States and you look at the crisis that in Flint, Michigan, and you see marginalized, poor black communities being the ones that are neglected and um, don't have access to clean water, which is really a travesty, I think. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, fundamentally the system, and, and here we are talking about, for me, the, the capitalist socioeconomic system um, is premised on on the idea of continued expansion and and has to therefore continuously grow. Um, and in order to do that, it has to have these material um, throughputs. It, it has to, to, to exploit um, both natural and, and human resources, um, which is impossible on a, on a, on a, a planet with finite resources available. Um, but beyond that, um, the logic of that system is therefore to, to create these conditions of scarcity. Um, to to um, create the conditions to to access more profit by selling these these necessities back, as I think um, Maggie has alluded to there. Right. So 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 it sounds like that there's something simply inherent in the system that it it in a way needs to create inequality in order to keep existing on absolutely. On yeah. Terms. I mean, for me, it's it's inherently unequal and therefore inherently unjust because it is it's premised on um, exploitation and expropriation. Mm. And I would I would add to that as well that there like because of this um, inequality, there's a lot of um, racial, colonial, gender components um, in these systems that um, you know, people at the bottom rung that have been oppressed and exploited for years. Um, including states that were colonized and used for their resources, not just their natural resources, which is still occurring today, but also their labor resources, um, cheap labor, a lot of, um, and I feel like a hypocrite sometimes talking about this because I love fashion and I love um, clothing. And I know that a lot of fast fashion is, 
you know, it's part of this capitalist system that exploits, especially women in the global South, um, garment workers, um, and this, the system kind of perpetuates keeping people in power. Um, and it's definitely something that we have to think about and be more critical about as individuals, but beyond individual ownership, I think there is, um, a lot that needs to be done on a larger scale than just individual action. It's important. I definitely think individual action is important, but um, there's, you know, it has to be multi-scalar. Like it has to happen um, on the government level, on the cultural level. There, I think there has to be a cultural shift in how we consume things. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. There's actually two points to, to pick up on, on Maggie there. I think when we're thinking of, the climate crisis and, and the biodiversity crisis and so on. And it has become uh, much more prominent in our, our politics and our, our our sort of social discourses and so on. And there are very important things, I think, that we can learn from, um, for me, green political theory, um, eco-feminism, um, race studies and so on, in that this is not just a system that exploits nature. It, it is not just about... Um, you know, rising sea levels and, uh, you know, the, the loss of, of uh, polar bears and so on, uh, as is often cited. But it is the historical um, injustices that have uh, provided the building blocks for, for this, this exploitative system of capitalism that we now have. And that has been um, disproportionate exploitation of, well, of women, of minorities, of the natural world, um, and and of workers, um, and that is systematized. Um, and for me and my research, uh, I look quite explicitly as as the state, as um, emblematic of of the ways in which this domination has been structured. Um, so, so kind of to to follow on Maggie, there it is. Yes, individual choices and so on are are really important and there are certain things that we can and should do in our own lives and in our own habits and consumption habits particularly um but we are operating as individuals within a system that is uh, created and maintained um ultimately to sustain capitalism um and, and therefore is inherently as i said before exploitative and, and expropriational yeah I, I guess there's a um I don't know if you could call it a, a conundrum there, but but yeah, obviously being you, you know uh, ad, adhering to zero waste lifestyles is is is, is not enough is not enough here. If I understand you right, it it has to be like if 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 global corporations or state or nation states keep on like um, exploiting the environment, then like the the the, the individual doesn't have much much leverage on 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 their own it, it needs to be able to scale up on to to much to much higher societal levels how how can how can societies get to the point where they can actually change um i would say it's i can be really overwhelmed by this question actually because it it is it is a big question and it is at the center of um environmental activism and I think I do have hope that things will change and I think um, governments can have a role in that but 
um, the systems as they're currently in place, um, where there's, you know, fossil fuel money in governments, potentially with politicians, um, specifically in the United States, um, that's not helping, you know, there have to be rules that are changed. Um, but also I get a lot of, um, hope and inspiration from young activists like Greta Thunberg and others, um, that are, you know, pressuring these governments. They're, they're telling them we, in order for us to survive and for the planet to survive and for us to live a good life, um, we need, we need you to act now. So I get a lot of inspiration from them. And I guess we are also sort of young. So I guess our research too um, is going to be really important in the future as well. Yeah, I, I um, absolutely agree with Maggie on that. There, there's a lot to be encouraged by. Certainly in the last couple of years, we've seen the emergence of um, the, the sort of school strike movement, Extinction Rebellion. Um, Black Lives Matter and and the Me Too movement as well, which are are really taking these these structures of of domination and and um, inaction head on, in saying that enough is enough. And and in many ways, although there are things that governments can do without addressing those underlying structures, um, they will ultimately be limited. Um, in in the action that they can uh, are are willing and capable of of taking, um, and in in also many ways to to get back to the idea of of you know continued growth um, and so on. It's this is the idea of economic growth it has become so like politically and and culturally hegemonic. Um, that it is just assumed that that is necessary, that is a precondition of, of social progress and so on. Um, and this is one of the main systemic barriers, if not the main systemic barrier to to add, add sort of post-growth and, and post-carbon transition, um, because that continued growth is 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 still coupled to to um, carbon emissions. You know, it needs that carbon energy, and and having that sort of that that supremacy in in political and and cultural imagination um means that, that there is there's an element of this which is is inherently non-democratic you know, we we as citizens as voters don't have the opportunity to actually address those fundamental questions what is the kind of society that we want to live in how do we make the economy work for us in the vision of that society that we have I think there's a lot of unlearning to be done in terms of um, our cultural predisposition to consume and accumulate and advance. And they in advance sounds like it's like, oh, we have to keep growing. And that's what advancement is. And that's what it looks like. And there's this kind of Western um, linear idea of progress um, instead of, you know, I know that there's... Um, some indigenous communities in um, the Andes Mountains that, you know, they don't think of progress in like a linear sense. I think a lot of indigenous communities probably have knowledge like this, but they think of it as living a good life, um, buen vivir, like to live well. So like not just, you know, accumulating, growing, um, constantly 
moving forward, whatever that means, um, but just to live a good life um, and and to allow everyone to live a good life. Yeah, I think in in that sense, that's really important, Maggie. I see there's in in some way we need to reappropriate what it means to grow, to to envision that envision that good life because it is you know it's tied to that idea of economic growth and and grow our material possessions and our, our material wealth but you know we, we grow as people as we um, have new experiences um, as we learn um, we grow our, our cultural imagination our cultural wealth wealth as we as we as we create be it music art literature um, we as communities grow as we as we forge connections with each other um, which is so hard to do now because we live in this sort of individualized, um, sort of consumption-obsessed society. Um, so I think there is a project of, of almost reappropriating that that word um, and 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 yeah, growing in that way, in those ways. Often I hear the term green growth mentioned, and I'm just curious what what do you what do you think if this is is that a possibility at all or is that is that an illusion we are giving ourselves mm, i think it's good to be skeptical of terms like that um because what does it mean you know um green growth does it mean we're still um exploiting people and the environment to create you know new things or i don't know um You know, and there's a lot of greenwashing that goes on in the capitalist economy in terms of everything being labeled sustainable, eco-friendly these days. So always be skeptical of those types of terms. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Callum. Yeah, I do. Um, and I absolutely agree. It, it's important to, to be skeptical from, from, from the first. Um, green growth for me now fundamentally is is a fallacy because it's premised on the idea that you can decouple economic growth um from carbon emissions and uh, the extraction of of natural resources um which those technologies uh that it 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 relies on to do that are are as yet um undeveloped and unfounded in science um so the idea of green growth fundamentally is is relying on what it cites as the, the the innovatory nature of capitalism that technology will find a way to allow this to happen and this is um embedded in the, the paris agreements um accounting for instance in 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 terms of how it accounts for its carbon budget you know it 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 talks about uh, carbon capture and storage and, and negative emissions technologies, which which are as yet not in existence. But also, as as Maggie alluded to there, and I think it's instructive to go back to to our previous discussion then on about individual choices and you know um, reduction in, in plastic and, and zero waste and so on. Is that um, the idea of of premising our future society on? on green growth and continuing with this idea of what social progress and and prosperity is means that you're it's intending to sustain capitalism but that doesn't get around the fact that that is still an inherently exploitative socioeconomic system 
um, so still premised on the exploitation of labour um, and 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 resources. And 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 but to add to that, I, I think this is a really important point: is that um, when we talk of growth, it's it's growth domestic product, um, for instance, is is how we measure economic growth, and it is it's undifferentiated. There are certain sections of the economy which will have to grow, the renewable energy sector, um, for instance, to see us through to a post carbon society, to to um, still create um, the conditions. Uh, of 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 an equal society, although we will have to to, to reduce that consumption as well. Um, so it's not just abandoned all growth, but we, we have to be we do have to be quite strategic. Um, and certainly, the, the fossil fuel industry, for 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 instance, can cannot be conti- allowed to continue to expand. Maggie, I was um, I'm curious if you could talk a bit about uh, ecofeminism, what that is, and where it fits into all of this, and what we can learn from it. Yeah, sure. Um, I think ecofeminism is one of the most fascinating strands of feminist thought, um, and it basically connects the exploitation of the planet with the subordination of women, and that they're. Um, you know, nature and women are seen as kind of like this inferior uh, passive thing to be controlled. Um, And that, you know, they're both, you know, the subordination of women and the exploitation of the planet are both products of um, capitalist patriarchy. So, and they're tied together and those systems of oppression reinforce each other. Um, And the same can be said for white supremacy. Um, and colonialism, you know, those systems of oppression love each other. They're really connected. <laughs> they reinforce each other. They keep the same people in power um, and they keep the same people oppressed. And um, I think it just keeps those hierarchies in place and it makes it even that much more hard to get um, into a more just society because they're reinforcing each other and they're, they're creating those barriers. And one of the more well-known, um, ecofeminists, um, is Vandana Shiva. Um, she's an Indian ecofeminist. Um, and I would definitely encourage listeners to look into her. She has a book with, um, Maria Mize on ecofeminism and, um, they're really, it's a really great book and it connects all of those systems that I'm, I'm talking about. And it's important to learn from that because, uh, we can't have gender justice without environmental justice. We can't have racial justice without environmental justice. All of these systems, it's a its a struggle for liberation for all of these people. And to get out of these systems would be freeing for us all. So I think that's an important thing to consider. Um, and definitely, yeah, look into ecofeminism. It used to be very... Um, dominated actually by white women in the 1970s, but has since then become more intersectional and um, take, taking into account racial dynamics, colonial power dynamics. So it's it's more progressive these days. So definitely check it out. I think that um, that point of intersectionality, that the climate movement or the movement for a just society, a just transition, um, in that regard, has a lot to learn from from feminism. Um, I think any movement that really stands a chance of of um, 
of of confronting the power of 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 capitalism of capitalist states um has to be intersectional there has to be again to to draw on what maggie talked about earlier the, the sort of this collective project of unlearning and relearning i think it, it is to to see the the way that these struggles interconnect um and the way that uh the source of that domination is predominantly the capitalist socioeconomic system that we live under, um, both in the uh, the Western world and, and in the global south. Um, uh, and it is then about building a cohesive movement, an intersectional movement, um, which is focused on, on, on dismantling all domination. It can't just be the fight for um, biodiversity. Um, it can't just be the fight for um, emissions reductions. Um, but it has to incorporate all those systems of oppression, um, the 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 good the good life, the good society that we want to that we have to envisage um, has to has to uh, free all from those systems of oppression. Um, I was just thinking about how um, for a long time the climate movement or the beginnings of um, environmentalism was very much so. Um, led by uh, people in STEM, a lot of white men in in those fields. Um, but now I'm very encouraged actually, like seeing the faces of people at like climate protests and things like that and the diversity there, because I think that's so important to have um, diverse the diversity in any movement um, because their experiences are fundamentally different. And they have to be brought to the table because we are ultimately, you know, going to neglect certain demographics if they aren't included in the conversation. So I think about um, a lot about uh, the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in the United States in New Orleans. And um, the people left behind from that were black women in New Orleans. They were not brought to the table when talking about rebuilding that city because if they were they would have known about the need for affordable low-income housing for single mothers um but instead when they rebuilt they built you know private housing and that that's not affordable or sustainable for those people so when we talk about um adapting and, and mitigating the effects of climate change we have to include people from every demographic because their experiences are unique and we have to make sure they're included in, in um, that, those rebuilding efforts, if that's the case, like in Hurricane Katrina or, or even just adapting as well. Speaking about uh, equality, um, Callum, you're, you're associated with CECA, the Center for Sustainability, Equality and Climate Action. Could you talk a bit about what that is? Certainly, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm lucky to have been uh, asked to, to 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 join that center. It's a fairly new center. Um, it is a a collection of of academics and, and PhD researchers from across Queens, um, and its main objective is with investigating um, the the interconnected aspects of of those three pillars of sustainability equality and climate action um 
in in understanding the barriers to effective action and also the the kind of lived world we we want to transition to um so there's a a, a really broad um spectrum of interest uh, research interests and and outputs and so on and um i i uh, don't presume to to speak for the center as i said it is a sort of collection of researchers which which incorporates um a number of PhD researchers as well, um, but in its short time as a, it's, uh, operating as a research centre in Queens, there, there has already been um, quite a, a large output in terms of conferences and public engagement and so on, and and um, there's quite a lot more already planned um, up until the summer and beyond. Fantastic! Uh, you you have a uh, you have a conference happening in June, is that right? That's correct. Yeah, um, a, a postgraduate a PhD uh, conference, which is scheduled for Friday the twenty fifth of June, um, from from ten a.m. until four thirty, um, and the the idea behind that it's it's the inaugural, it's the first of its type um, for the center, and it, it's its participants are are just from within Queens, but from across Queens. Um, so the whole idea behind it was. Um, to bring together various researchers uh, working within sustainability, equality and climate action from across the university's various schools and faculties um, to primarily showcase the, the diversity um, and the scale of research that is underway, but also with the intention of, of creating new linkages between those. Um, and it's very much uh, based on, on the recognition that um, we have to have these conversations, the kind of conversations that we're having today, um, but between researchers and, and to understand the, the the different research that is ongoing. So as someone working in political theory to better understand um, other cultural aspects or the, you know, the, the, the techno technological um, implications or, or, or the scientific implications in biological sciences, for instance. Uh, so although the, the speakers aren't confirmed yet at this stage, um, they, there's already been a, a really encouraging response um, from across the various schools, from, from sciences, from, from creative writing, from um, you know, the natural and built environment and so on. Uh, so I, I think it'll be a really uh, exciting event and, and hopefully the first of, of many to come. That's fascinating. Yeah, I'm, it, it makes me think, I guess maybe in, in academia, there's sometimes a tendency to um, seeing yourself as an external observer of what is happening in the world and you're describing these, describing these phenomena. But since we're now talking a lot about, um, well, well, the systemic properties or uh, the, the systemic difficulties of, of uh, climate change uh, and sustainability, like... I guess there's also we also as academics in our own institutions and in in, in the structures that we um, we engage with we also that there's also a lot of environmental uh, and diversity uh, let's say issues at at play there that that uh, could possibly be addressed further. Yeah, I think I would I would love to hear from from Maggie on on this as well, but I think incorporating that is that it's almost i think within academia there's been historically this uh 
divide between the academic and the activist. I think when we're we're thinking of the scale of change and the and how quickly it has to happen if we're to 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 honestly be have any hope of averting catastrophe, um, then it's incumbent upon researchers to to take up the mantle of activism. We have to we have to use the research that we're doing to try and change uh, the world for the better. I I totally agree with that. Um, I think that kind of divide is totally irrelevant now. We have to we have to um, take up climate action, and um, you know I think all uh, climate research should be interdisciplinary, intersectional. I think no matter what, you're going to have to you know dip a toe into another field. Um, which can feel uncomfortable at times, but is actually how we're going to learn the most from each other as scholars um, and to listen to each other in the different fields. Like, um, because if we're not doing that, we can't come up with creative and innovative solutions um, for the future. So, yeah, and I think being a scholar activist is something that really interests me in the future. Like, I would love to advocate for just solutions and but as well as do research rooted empirically and um yeah I I think it's something that that should be respected and not kind of um you know saying oh these activists like you shouldn't just brush them away um but yeah I, I I would agree with you there Callum for me it's just it's no longer acceptable to to be on the fence to assume this mantle of, of objectivity, um, particularly if you, if you are working in, in fields of sustainability and so on, have to be driven by the, the kind of world that, that we want to see in the future. I feel that's um, a very um, positive and strong statement to, to end this conversation on. I, I was going to ask you about how, to, how do we actually how do we change? How do we change the world? But it, I think you both answered that during the, the entire conversation. So I, I, I want to thank you both for, uh, for having this conversation. It was uh, incredibly interesting and fascinating hearing your views and, uh, and your call for action. Of course. No, I've enjoyed it. Um, it was nice talking to you both. Yes, very much. Thank you, Adam. And thank you, Maggie, for stimulating conversation. That's it for today. The QB theme song is composed by Bihe Wen. Next episode, I'll be talking to Jaim Park. In the meantime, make sure to follow us on Twitter.